You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November edition of Heart Sounds. I'm your host, Shelley Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm still feeling the after effects of a very busy November. Our reporters here spent the first week of the month scrambling to wrap up all the big news from TCT in Denver. That includes the explosive Orbita study, which almost broke the internet November 1st. Our TCT stories were scarcely in the bag before most of us jetted back out to the AHA meeting in Anaheim, where the long-awaited blood pressure guidelines really stole the show. I'm proud of the work our journalists did in capturing all the nuances for both of these big-ticket items and for everything else that made headlines this month. There's really too much to choose from here, so I can only bring you a handful of stories from both meetings and the voices therein. I hope you'll check out the website to get the full scoop from both conferences and the breadth of questions being asked around the globe in the fight against heart disease. Let's get started. The small trial that everyone is talking about this month? Orbita. Released on the last day of TCT and published simultaneously in The Lancet, Orbita made a big splash in the media and an equally big splash among cardiologists and other healthcare providers of all stripes. I hope you'll check out the Editor's Corner, where I give you my two bits about some of the heated discussion that followed the presentation of this study. We've also got slides, video, multiple news stories, enough material for a PhD thesis, which indeed is what Orbita was for lead investigator Rasha Alami from the Imperial College London. The trial enrolled 200 patients with angina or equivalent symptoms and at least one angiographically significant lesion in a single vessel. All patients went through a six-week medical optimization phase, an angiography that included FFR and IFR, before randomization to PCI or a sham procedure. A lot has been said and written about Orbita in the last few weeks. Seems fair to let Alami have her say here. This audio has been lifted from my on-record interview with Alami and Ajay Curtinay. I hope you'll watch that in full. In the meantime, I've actually stitched two pieces of audio together here, so you'll get Alami's synopsis of the key findings, plus some interpretation. So, for the primary endpoint of the difference in exercise time between the two groups, there was no significant difference. However, we we did find some other interesting findings. We found that if we looked at the within-arm change of exercise time, the angioplasty group did better than the placebo group. They significantly improved their exercise time, while the placebo group improved a little, but it was non-statistically significant. We also found that IFR and FFR were significantly reduced by angioplasty, and ischemia as measured by wall motion score index on the stress echo was significantly improved. So we did improve the blood supply to these patients' hearts, however that didn't translate as much as we expected into their symptom and exercise time improvement. I, I mean, I hate to say this as one of the clinical trialists on the trial, but I think it's a win-win for everyone. In fact, what this trial has given us is the opportunity for a patient-centered informed consent process where you can talk to your patients about two options medical therapy um, which may be an option for patients like this single vessel coronary disease a good cohort of patients with good LV function and not perhaps not as symptomatic as others or the option to have an upfront procedure with small upfront risk for the potential to reduce ischemia which may have prognostic implications and also not to have that pill burden going forward In the wake of TCT 2017, I've heard some grousing that the controversy sparked by Orbita did a disservice to other, larger trials that may actually have more immediate repercussions for patient lives. One of these is culprit shock. 
As you know, a number of clinical practice documents have recently been updated to favor the use of multivessel revascularization in the setting of AMI. Less is known about whether patients presenting with cardiogenic shock should also get this approach. To zero in on this high-risk group, Culprit Shock enrolled 706 patients with acute MI and cardiogenic shock presenting at one of 83 European centers. Patients were randomized to culprit lesion-only PCI during the index procedure, with an option for stage revascularization of non-culprit lesions thereafter, or to immediate multivessel PCI. The primary composite endpoint was death or severe renal failure, leading to renal replacement therapy within 30 days of randomization. As Holger Thiele of Germany's Heart Center Leipzig reported at TCT, patients randomized to the culprit-only arm experienced that primary endpoint significantly less often than did patients in the multivessel PCI arm. Additional outcomes such as recurrent MI, rehospitalization for congestive heart failure, bleeding, and stroke did not differ between trial arms. Here's Thiele presenting his conclusions. So in conclusion, in patients with multivessel coronary artery disease and cardiogenic shock, complicating acute myocardial infarction, culprit lesion-only PCI, with the allowance for possible staged revascularization, reduce the composite of mortality or the requirement for renal replacement surgery for severe renal failure at 30-day follow-up. And this effect and the primary outcome was mainly driven by a 30-day mortality reduction of absolutely 8%. And this largest randomized European multicenter trial in cardiogenic shock, complicating acute myocardial infarction, therefore challenges current European and also American appropriate use criteria. Other findings that may have been somewhat eclipsed by Orbita at TCT are the three-year results from FAME-2. As you may recall, FAME-2 originally enrolled more than 1,200 patients with stable CAD and at least one flow-limiting lesion by FFR. They were then randomized to optical medical therapy with or without FFR-guided PCI. The study was halted early after interim data showed that FFR-guided patients had substantially fewer events related to the primary composite endpoint of all-cause death, MI, or urgent revascularization, this last being the key driver of the endpoint difference. At TCT this year, William Fearon showed results for MACE and its components at three years, but also provided some insights into how the different treatment approaches affected angina symptoms, quality of life, and costs over the longer term. For full details, check out Laura McEwen's story on TCTMD. For a teaser, let me play you a bit of the discussion that Fearon had with host Michael Gibson in a studio interview on-site at TCT 2017. Note that all of these Gibson interviews can be watched in full at TCTMD or by subscribing to the Talking Points podcast. First of all, and remind our audience about what the FAME study was. Yeah, so FAME 2 was a study to look at uh, treatment of patients with stable coronary disease. You know, there's still some controversy about whether medical therapy alone or PCI plus medical therapy is the right approach. And previous studies had showed really not much difference in outcomes or quality of life and increased costs with PCI. But those studies, you know, they didn't include patients with large amounts of myocardial ischemia, and they used older techniques for PCI. And we now know that fractional flow reserve identifies lesions that 
cause ischemia and identifies patients who benefit from PCI. So the concept behind FAME2 was to test in using these parameters, uh, medical therapy alone versus PCI plus medical therapy in patients who had at least one lesion with an abnormal FFR. And uh, what did you find? So the original study found significant benefit with respect to major adverse events, death, MI, and urgent revascularization being significantly reduced, primarily due to urgent revascularization. And now the topic of this study was to look at longer-term, three-year outcomes, both clinical outcomes, but also focusing a little more on quality of life and cost and cost-effectiveness. And uh, was it cost-effective? Did people yeah. have improved quality of life? So it was very interesting. Uh, the clinical outcomes continued to be significantly better. Death, MI, urgent revascularization was around 22% in the uh, medical therapy arm, and it was 10% at three years in the PCI arm. Again, mostly driven by urgent revascularization, although death and MI was about 8% versus 10%, um, with PCI being lower, mm -hmm. but not statistically significant. Mm -hmm. But what was, I think, um, more impressive is the um, angina relief was consistently better throughout in the PCI arm. The number of antianginal medications was significantly lower in the PCI arm uh, throughout, and their quality of life was better. And then when we look at costs, of course, there's a big cost difference early on because of PCI costing more. But by the time you get to three years, uh, the cost difference had vanished. Oh, and really? There was no difference because of urgent revascularizations, repeat hospitalizations, and so forth in the um, uh, medical therapy alone arm. Let's turn now to the biggest news from the American Heart Association scientific sessions this year, the new hypertension guidelines. Todd Neal wrote TCTMD's story on the guidelines, which have been in the works for more than three years. As expected, the findings from trials like Sprint and others spurred the writing committee to recommend BP lowering to a treatment goal of less than 130 over 80 across patient groups. Also new is how different blood pressure levels are classified. As a result of these new definitions, nearly half of all U.S. adults, 45.6%, are now deemed to have hypertension, up from 31.9% according to the previous JNC7 criteria. The clip I'm going to play you delves into this reclassification issue and what the impact of that should be. This audio comes from a video interview provided to the press by the American Heart Association. In it, AHA President John Warner is speaking with Paul Welton of Tulane University, the writing group chair for the 2017 Hypertension Clinical Practice Guidelines. Tell us a little bit about some of the big changes in the guidelines, things that you think will change practice based on their publication. Right. Well, certainly a big change is classification. And the last time we had a new classification of blood pressure was 1993, so maybe it's time. And, you know, we have new information now that at a lower level than we would classify hypertension before. That is a systolic of 130 to 139 or a diastolic of 80 to 89. That's already high risk and we call that stage one hypertension. And we have a lot of trials that show this benefit from reducing below those levels of blood pressure. So that's a big change. And uh, in addition to that, uh, we take those who are above 140 systolic and above 90 diastolic and label them as stage two hypertension. So that's a big change. Normal is the same as before, 120, below 120 systolic, below 80 diastolic. And then we have a group of elevated blood pressure between normal and stage one. So it's a 
new system. It'll take a while to get used to it, but I think it's the right system. It'll capture those at risk better than our former system. Todd asked a whole host of people for reaction to the new BP guidelines, and I hope you'll read his story to get the full spectrum of responses. For a sample, here's Martha Gulati from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix. Todd has just asked her what she thinks of the new hypertension categories and their implications. Well, of course, it'll expand the number of people, which the guidelines admit that, that you know, basically, if you look at the NHANES data, it'll mean in the United States, almost 45% of people will have hypertension based on the new definition. So almost one in two, right? Um, and then additionally, I think that it will um, get us to be more aggressive, hopefully, about treating blood pressure. And by treating, I hope that that will make people not just think of drugs. It's not, and then in fact, the guidelines are very clear that not everybody needs drugs, even when you have a diagnosis of hypertension. But for us to implement lifestyle changes, not to just say, oh, well, the blood pressure, you know, even it's almost like when we said pre-hypertension, it gave almost permission to physicians to not treat those numbers and not necessarily address lifestyle changes. But um, now if it's diagnosed with hypertension, there's some sort of intervention that should happen. And even if it doesn't require drugs, it does require lifestyle modification and that discussion with patients about what can they do to change their blood pressure versus some of those people, you know, people that are higher risk, they will need um, lifestyle and pharmacologic therapy. The guidelines weren't the only interesting thing at AHA, of course. Just as we saw at the TCT meeting before it, several of the late-breaking studies in Anaheim were later follow-up of big trials we got at earlier meetings or sub-analyses from some of these trials. PCSK9 inhibitors have been one of the most talked-about agents of the last few years. At AHA 2017 back in March, we got Fourier, the first hard proof that lowering LDL using evolocumab can reduce cardiovascular events. For the primary results, Fourier reduced the risk of CVD death, MI, stroke, hospitalization for unstable angina, or coronary revascularization by 15% compared with placebo. Cardiovascular mortality, however, was no different between groups. Since ACC, most of the analyses that have poured into Fourier's wake have been focused on the exorbitant cost of the drug, more than $14,000 per year. At AHA, however, two new Fourier analyses zeroed in on particular subsets that might benefit more from this agent. Mark Bonaca of the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston presented the PAD subgroup analysis. Among the more than 3,600 patients with symptomatic PAD in the trial, 1,500 had no history of MI or stroke. Yet, as Yael Maxwell wrote at AHA, evolocumab reduced the primary endpoint consistently in patients both with and without PAD. And importantly, in patients with PAD but no previous stroke or MI, the absolute risk reduction was actually greater than that seen in the no PAD group. In a second presentation, Mark Sabatine, also from the Brigham, looked at the 22,000 patients with prior MI in Fourier. This analysis showed that patients who started on evolocumab within two years of their MI seemed to benefit more, compared with placebo treatment, than did patients whose MIs had occurred more than two years previously. Lynn Braun of Rush University Medical Center in Chicago was the AHA discussant for both of these analyses. 
In addition to pointing out the under-representation of women in both analyses, 28% and 21% respectively, she had this to say. I wonder exactly what we can say about the subgroup of women in these trials, the subgroup of women with prior MIs and with PAD. So can we truly discern the benefits achieved with respect to a woman's risk? Secondly, will evolocumab plus statin therapy show a mortality benefit versus statin therapy alone with longer follow-up? You know, we need to know this, uh, the answer to this question, obviously. And the projection was exciting that uh, Dr. Sabatine presented. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, not all of our patients with ASCVD can have these medications, these expensive medications. So I commend these subgroup analyses because they will help clinicians truly target the use of PCSK9 inhibitors to the patients who will benefit the most. While we're on the subject of expensive drugs and subset analyses, let me give you one more highlight from AHA. I told you about the CANTOS trial after ESC 2017. This was the 10,000-patient trial testing kenikinumab versus placebo in folks with a previous MI and high-sensitivity CRP levels greater than or equal to 2 mg per deciliter. In the primary analysis, treatment with 150 mg of kenikinumab every three months reduced the relative risk of non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or cardiovascular death, the study's primary composite endpoint. That reduction was 15% over a median follow-up of 3.7 years when compared with placebo. At AHA this month, Paul Ridker of the Brigham and Women's Hospital presented new data showing that patients with high CRP at baseline, who show a robust response to canakinumab, really do get more bang for their buck. That's a good thing since canakinumab, which currently holds orphan drug status as a treatment for rare immune disorders, costs a cool 200000 per year. In this analysis, however, Patients who reduced their high CRP to less than 2 mg per liter on canakinumab had a 25% reduction in the risk of the primary endpoint. Please wander over to tctmd.com to check out Michael Reardon's coverage of Cantos, both from ESC and AHA 2017. That is a wrap for the November edition of Heart Sounds. What a month! This really was one of the toughest podcasts to pull together because I had to leave out so many great stories. I've focused today on the late-breaking trials and the new guidelines, but as I've told you before, sometimes some of my favorite stories at these meetings come from the quieter sessions or the lone fellow standing proudly by her poster. For example, check out some of the debates we covered at TCT. At AHA, Yael did a fascinating story about how decade-old financial incentives created by CMS to cut down on self-referrals and inappropriate stress tests have backfired. I myself covered a survey of burnout among cardiologists. You can find those stories on the TCT and AHA conference pages. I hope by now we've convinced you to subscribe to the Heart Sounds podcast. You can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Check out our other two cardiology podcasts as well. These are Talking Points with Michael Gibson and TCT Radio, recorded live at the annual TCT meeting. I'll be back next month. Thanks for listening. 